0: Welcome back to my podcast, From Heaven to Eternity. I'm Brian, and I'm glad you can join us as we continue to walk through the book of Matthew. In this episode, we're picking up with chapter 9. If you have missed any of the previous chapters, you can subscribe to the From Heaven to Eternity podcast to check those out. If you want to stay updated on reading plans and my other resources, you can follow the From Heaven to Eternity Facebook group. Chapter 9 is similar to chapter 8 and that they're both part of this narrative section in between the Sermon on the Mount and the next set of Jesus' teachings, which starts again in a couple chapters. Chapter 9 continues to display the divinity of Jesus through his miraculous healings and his absolute authority over all things. It continues to underline the actions Jesus calls his followers toward, specifically the heart transformation that members of the kingdom of heaven should desire as we pray for the harvest and the laborers called toward God's work. To pick up the first verse of Matthew 9, we need to go back to the last few verses of the previous chapter. Jesus, after seeing the great crowds gathering around him, boarded a boat with his disciples and they crossed the sea. Jesus exercised his authority over nature by calming the storming sea during their transition. Then they land on the other side in the country of Gergesenes, where Jesus exercised his authority over demons when he cured two demon-possessed people. There ends up being a commotion about it and the resulting loss of a herd of pigs, so all the people in the city begged Jesus to leave. So almost as soon as he had exited the boat, we get verse 9-1, where he entered into a boat and crossed back over and came into his own city. Matthew's focus in this section on Jesus' healings and his authority continue when in verses 2 through 8, some people bring a paralytic man before Jesus. The obvious reason for this was because they thought Jesus could heal him, and eventually Jesus does in fact heal the man's paralysis. But the first words Jesus speaks to the man have nothing to do with his physical healing. Jesus replies, Son, cheer up. Your sins are forgiven you. We don't get anything in the story that says the man was seeking forgiveness for his sins. We also don't get anything in this story that this man's paralysis was directly a consequence of some specific sin of his. There could have been something there, and the Bible is clear that sometimes ailments are the direct consequence of individual sin. But, even those without physical ailments are in need of forgiveness for sins. So Jesus' point is larger than this specific man. David Platt points out that our ultimate need is never physical. It's always spiritual. Straight away, the religious elite accused Jesus of blaspheming. Though instead of saying it to Jesus, they appear to just be muttering it among themselves. They know the only person who can forgive sins directly is God himself. So for Jesus to claim that he can forgive sins puts him in unique territory. Jesus, knowing the evil hearts of the men, calls them out on it which is ironic because we're talking about Jesus having the authority to forgive the sinful state of man. Jesus then underlines his authority over sins by displaying his authority to heal the man, continuing this narrative that Jesus has authority over all things. He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He then commands the man to rise and walk, which the man does, to this extreme reaction from the surrounding crowd. There are some translation differences in the verbiage of the reaction from the crowd. Some say they were afraid or marveled or in awe. Either way, all the translations agree that the outward response to the inward emotion felt was to glorify God. The reasoning for glorifying God seems to be an interesting note. Verse 8 says, But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Translators have some differences as to what this authority to men phrase is really getting at. First, it is important to note that this isn't a theological statement by Matthew about Jesus, or a statement about Jesus by Jesus himself. Matthew is describing what the crowd following Jesus was thinking. I think that that's an important distinction here when he says, they marveled and glorified God who had given such authority to men. I've read some commentators who say that men must mean the authority that Jesus will eventually delegate to his followers one day to heal people. I don't agree with that thought line because Jesus is clearly linking this specific healing action to having the authority only he has to forgive sins. Jesus alone is who I put my faith in for forgiveness. Some other commentaries have taken the word men to be a rhetorical phrase, that it's really not a plural men, but a singular man, referring to Jesus, who had just called himself the son of man. Linguistically, the Greek word used here is a little ambiguous. Anthropos, can be plural and mean men like when Jesus tells his disciples that he will make them fishers of men but it can also be used as a singular like later in this chapter when Jesus saw a man called Matthew it could mean singular man but every translation I've looked at translates it as men and I don't think they all got it wrong I lean toward a third exegetical option the first seven verses of Matthew continue the narrative of who Jesus is and that he has authority over all things. We see at the end of Matthew 8 that the people of Gadara recognize what Jesus can do, but not who he is. He casts out demons and they recognize his abilities, but not his absolute authority, at least not in any messianic or divine way. We've also seen other crowds recognize Jesus as different, but still not see the whole picture. In the full context of everything going on with Jesus' Instagram-style followers in the crowd, I don't think they are saying, God has given all authority to this one specific man. There's no proof that the multitudes really get who Jesus is. We, the readers, have the benefit of Matthew 1.21, which says that, "...you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who shall save his people from their sins." And Matthew might be underlining that the crowds just think it's pretty awesome that God has given some men the ability to perform actions that lead to the forgiveness of sins. Maybe they think that that's cool that God lets this man perform roles similar to the priests or to Moses or the prophet Elijah. Maybe they recognize that this is something greater, that Jesus has some unique skills, but they're still failing to recognize his authority and the authority that Jesus is really displaying here. They are not recognizing Jesus as the singular God-man. Jesus is our great High priest, the new and greater Moses. Above all other priests and prophets, and Jesus' actions carry an authority higher than anything the Jewish religious elite presented, and it was higher than the former Jewish leaders could have ever claimed. According to the NIV translation, the book of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. While the religious elite were starting to resent Jesus for his claims, and his small small band of true disciples are starting to see a picture of his true authority, the crowd still failed to see Jesus as worth following with everything they have. Matthew is still presenting a theology that Jesus is the only path to forgiveness for sins, a point this book will make repeatedly over the rest of its chapters. As D.A. Carson says, Jesus came to forgive sin and transform sinners, and this was foundational to the rest of his ministry. Jesus' proclamation that he could forgive sins got the scribes and the Pharisees all worked up. Jesus just keeps the blows coming in this next section when he calls a tax collector to follow him. Then he sits down and enjoys a shared community meal with men the Jewish people considered societies wicked and sinful. This dude Matthew, who's also known as Levi, is a tax collector. Tax collectors held an interesting and shunned, reviled place in Jewish society. So Jerusalem was governed by Rome, and it fell under the Roman tax farming system, which had regional quotas and people under leadership, and profits were anything that went above the quota. This system was set up by Gaius Gracchus in about 123 BC, primarily to increase the efficiency of tax collection within Rome itself, but the system quickly spread into all the provinces. I'm sure that I'll butcher this, but the basic system operated sort of how we might see like a modern gang or mob payment systems portrayed in movies. Each region of the Roman Empire was required to pay a certain tax quota to Rome. To do this, each regional director hired tax collectors under them to cover a city or a sub-region. Then each city director recruited people to cover each district. Now, each of these levels wasn't paid by Rome directly. Instead, they only made money by collecting more than they were required to pay Rome. So, the regional guy might have to pay Rome $100, but if he wants to make a good salary, he might tell the guys under him that he needs $120. Well, the guys under him need to raise more than that if they want to get paid, so it just keeps waterfalling into this inflated tax system. Because your lifestyle was directly tied to how much you could take from others, tax collectors took to practices like strong-arming, blackmailing, and intimidation. They were not some IRS accountant with a pocket protector. They were more like highly educated mob enforcers. This idea that Jewish tax collectors could rob and pillage their own people so they could live in luxury caused them to be hated throughout Israel. Matthew was one of these dudes. And Jesus walks up to his tax booth and he says, follow me, which Matthew does right away. This would have caused a stir all by itself. But Jesus takes it a step further verse 10 says he sat in the house behold many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with jesus and his disciples the pharisees called jesus out right away on this at this point they were as much a political organization as they were a religious group so they couldn't pass up an opportunity to drive a wedge between jesus and the israelites in the crowd according to charles corliss the pharisees even used events like this to spread rumors that unfairly caricatured Jesus as a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus' response should resonate with us and cause us to rejoice. He says, Those who are healthy have no need for a physician, but those who are sick do. Jesus isn't after those who are pure. He knows that apart from himself, those people don't exist in a fallen world. Jesus hasn't come for those who think of themselves as pure and better than other sinners. No. Jesus has come for all those who recognize their imperfections and their need for a Savior. He is, after all, the only place we can go to for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus follows this statement up with verse 13, where he calls the religious people to contemplate this sentence. But you go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The line, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, is a quote from the Old Testament book of Hosea. It's from a chapter about how unrepentant the people of Israel were in their hearts, and about how even the Jewish leadership and priesthood weren't faithfully seeking God anymore. I'll read all of chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But they, like Adam, have broken the covenant... They were unfaithful to me there. So that's Hosea chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, comparing the Jewish leadership and the priesthood to Adam and a broken covenant. Remember that the Pharisees prided themselves on their knowledge of Scripture. So for Jesus to go and say, go and learn what this means, would have been a big insult to their pride. The book of Hosea displays how the relentless love of God pursues sinners. And Jesus finishes up this section in Matthew with that statement, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Of course, Jesus calls sinners to be his disciples. That is the only type of person that was available to him. As Christians, we need to drop our self-righteousness at the door. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. We all need to repent and rest in the mercy only Jesus can give. The moment that we feel we've made it, that we've arrived and that we're good enough is the same moment we need to get down on our knees and pray for forgiveness. But this should also resonate with the person who thinks they are too much a sinner to ever receive the grace and mercy of God. Jesus steps into that situation too, and he says, no, I have come for you also. There is no way to out-sin what Jesus did on the cross, as long as you turn toward him in faith. verses 14 through 17 deal with the question about fasting and why Jesus' disciples weren't seen to be fasting during Jesus' earthly ministry. In the Old Testament times, one of the reasons for fasting was an anticipation of the Messiah. One of the reasons we fast today is to focus on God, to realize that God is more important than what we are fasting from. We fast to let God transform us and to recognize God's authority over us. Jesus' disciples didn't need to fast for the Messiah's coming. Jesus is the Messiah, and he is God, standing in his presence and focusing on his teachings. The disciples were already letting God transform them. Notice two important things here. Jesus doesn't discount fasting or say its future practice would be worthless. He just spent a paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount instructing us on how we should fast when it's appropriate. Also, notice that Jesus is answering a question about the practices of the small group of disciples who are actively following him at that time. He doesn't say nobody should fast ever. He's just talking about his hand-picked disciples prior to him going to the cross. Jesus makes it clear that there will be a time for fasting. When Jesus is gone, then everybody who follows him should take some time out of the rhythm of their everyday lives to reorient themselves and desire God's presence and wisdom through fasting. Jesus relates himself to the bridegroom, which is an amazing hyperlink back to Old Testament passages referring to God and the Messiah. It is a profound statement by Jesus of who Jesus is. Isaiah 54 verse 5 says, For your maker is your husband, Yahweh of armies is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Hosea chapter 2 verses 16 and then 19 and 20 say, It will be in that day, says Yahweh, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. I will betroth you to me forever." Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness, and in compassion. I will even betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know Yahweh. Jesus continues his miraculous healings, and in order, he restores health, life, sight, freedom, and voice to people. By the end of this section, we have now seen Jesus with authority over disease, nature, demons, forgiveness, uncleanness, and life itself. We get four specific miracle stories in rapid succession between verses 18 and 34. Then in verse 35, we get a blanket statement for additional miracles Jesus performed during this time. First, a woman who is suffering lays her hands on Jesus and is healed. There are some big things going on here, and I'll try to point them out quickly. First, this ailment had been going on for 12 years, so Jesus is healing something that has existed for a long time. Second, this specific ailment of bleeding would have made the woman unclean in Jewish eyes. She would not have been allowed to participate in Jewish temple ceremonies for the past 12 years. It's not an apples-to-apples comparison. But if the recent quarantine life has taught me anything, it's that I don't like being isolated from my faith community, even for just a few months. This woman would have been considered unclean, shunned, and isolated for 12 years. Third, despite all of this, the woman never gave up hope. After 12 years of this, she hears of who Jesus is and still has hope and faith that God can perform miracles. Jesus heals the woman without ever being told what her specific ailment was. Jesus is intimately familiar with us and all of our issues, and yet he still allows us to come to him and be healed. The Greek word used here literally means to be saved. Think about Matthew 1.21, for it is he who shall save his people. Lastly, Jesus lets this event happen. Remember back when we were talking about the leper in chapter 8? and how touching an unclean person in Jewish tradition caused you to be considered unclean too? Well, here we get another instance where Jesus does not let this deter him from doing what he came to do, engage with and save the sick and the lost. And actually, he doubles down on contact with unclean things in the next miracle because he holds the hand of a dead girl, which is also considered ceremonially ceremonially unclean. After healing this woman, Jesus then enters the house where a girl has died. Based on the music and the loud commotion of verse 23, all indications are she has been dead for a while. People have started gathering for Jewish wake and or funeral practices. The permanency of her death is also emphasized when the crowd laughs at Jesus' suggestion that her condition was temporary. Jesus then throws them out of the house, holds the girl's hand, and brings her back to life. This is not the only time that Jesus revives someone from the dead, but all are equally pointing to his authority over death and all are foreshadowing his defeat of death when he dies on the cross but is resurrected three days later. Verses 27-30 through see Jesus heal two blind men. These men provide the return of a title for Jesus previously used in Matthew. The Son of David was used in the first verse of Matthew, Jesus the Christ the Son of David. It's a messianic title alluding to the future king that would come from the line of King David who would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Its use by these two blind men would have been significant and understood by everybody in the Jewish crowd. Even though Jesus knows the heart of men, he asks for a public proclamation of their faith that Jesus could, in fact, heal them before he does so. The Bible says upon his touch, their eyes were opened. Again, the word choice here is alluding to Old Testament prophecies about God and the Messiah. This message is especially clear in Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. Tell those who have a fearful heart, be strong, don't be afraid. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, God's retribution. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing, for waters will break out in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This passage in Isaiah also connects the blind man's healing in verse 30 with the mute man speaking in verse 33. Jesus again shows his authority over the devil and demons by casting one out of the mute person and enabling him to speak again. Notice the difference between how the two groups of people around Jesus react to this. The crowds, they marveled, similar to the healing of the paralytic. Not sure if this had ever been done in the history of Israel like they claim. I mean, God had worked some pretty amazing miracles before. But regardless, these crowds appear in awe of the authority Jesus is displaying. The Pharisees, on the other hand, accused Jesus of being able to cast out demons by the prince of demons. Again, they're accusing Jesus of a severe crime, and they're foreshadowing the coming conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. In each of these miracles, the faith of the people does not heal them. Jesus heals them. But Matthew does point out the tie between Jesus' action and at least some level of faith in the recipients. You cannot heal yourself through faith, and having faith is no guarantee of physical healing. But, You can lay your faith and your brokenness at the feet of Jesus and then rest in his authority over all things. Verse 35 concludes this narrative section with a blanket statement about all of the other healings and miracles that Jesus performed throughout the region. It echoes the end of chapter 4, which was the last time there was a transition from a major narrative section to a major teaching section, just before the Sermon on the Mount began. We'll pick up with verse 936 next episode, because these last few verses really connect to what Jesus instructs at the start of chapter 10. Overall, Matthew 9 continues to outline who Jesus is and the authority that he has been given. We see Jesus has authority over all things, including death, and that he alone has the power to forgive sins. We should celebrate and rejoice in this, turning toward him in faith and laying our brokenness at his feet. Next episode, we'll finish the last three verses of chapter 9 and then dive into chapter 10. Please please follow us on the From Heaven to Eternity Facebook group to keep up to date on all the latest podcasts, videos, and blog posts we have. If you're interested in supporting this effort, please consider joining one of our executive member tiers on Patreon. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is public domain. Until next time, I love y'all.